Welcome to a special season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society, or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In this special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into an INS annual meeting. Episode 2 of the Social Justice Special Season of Neuroethics Today, Community-Centered Social Justice and Neuroethics. I am your host for today, Laura Specker-Sullivan, along with Nicole Martinez, and in this episode we will dig into some questions around the role of identity and community in mental health care, the individual as part of a whole, and epistemic humility. For some perspective on these themes, we are joined by Neely Myers, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Southern Methodist University, Gulam Abbas Laka, DPhil candidate in Neuroscience, Ethics, and Society at the University of Oxford, and Yunus Kamara, Professor of Religion at Moy University in Kenya. So I'm going to start by asking each panelist in turn to situate their research within the themes for today. Just as a reminder, the major themes we're going to be thinking about are uh, the role of identity and community, the individual as part of a whole, and epistemic humility. So I'm going to start by calling on Gulam Abbas. Could you tell us a little bit about how your research fits within those themes? Hi. Um, firstly, thank you very much for, for hosting such an interesting panel. I'm really looking forward to listening to uh, the amazing panelists we've got here today. Um, it's um, it's a little embarrassing to go first, given the kind of all, all august colleagues we have. Um, so I'll be as brief as I can. In a nutshell, um, I have two parts to my work. Um, academically, I'm a research psychologist, um, but from a community point of view, I serve as a sheikh in the Muslim community. Um, and that's been my role for the last 10 years. Um, so given that my research academically is on faith and mental health and the interplays between them, um, it allows me to draw upon my community role quite explicitly. So my identity, the role of my identity within the community that I serve um, is very important from a research point of view because the research I'm focusing on at the moment is looking at how faith-based concepts and practices can be recruited for making psychotherapeutic interventions, particularly for depression, more effective. And in terms of how they could become more effective, the how of it is really in two mechanisms. The first is with respect to accessibility, because we know that, you know, Identity is a big issue for individuals in the community. And often their identity as members of faith communities can be a barrier to accessing psychotherapy. So accessibility is one aspect. The second is adherence, because of course psychotherapy only really works if you do the homework, right? And in order to make it easier to integrate those 
um, techniques and practices, if we can link them to what is already going on, such as prayer practices or gratitude practices, or indeed uh, community engagement in terms of behavioral activation, it makes it so much easier and critically more natural. Um, in terms of the third aspect, epistemic humility, well, not only do all the great religions teach that, but also science uh, makes it very clear because um, as soon as you uh, set about having a particular research aim, your data quickly brings you down to earth by giving you a different steer. And so I think actually both sides of my work, the science and the religion, uh, keep reiterating the importance of epistemic humility and, and, and re-evaluating both the research design as well as the research methods that we are using and constantly checking ourselves. And I think that's good, both from a scientific point of view as well as from a personal individual point of view. That's fantastic. Thank you for that synopsis, Galamabas. And I'm looking forward to talking more about your research as we move on. Um, next, I'm gonna ask Eunice to say a little bit about how your research fits into our themes for today. Um, thank you very much, Lola. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to be in this uh, panel. I'm definitely going to learn a lot as we go along. I'm already excited to hear about uh, the work of um, my colleague around mental health and uh, identity. Um, because at some point it is, uh, intersects with what I do. So professionally, I'm a um, professor of African Christian ethics in the Department of Religion at Moore University. And as professor, I have a three um, tired role. Uh, I teach or train, and I also do research and I engage in community uh, service. The exciting thing is that all the three, all the three roles are one, ultimately, because when I do research and I get new ideas, then we want to apply them in community and we want to engage those new ideas in teaching and learning. So it's really one role at the end of the day, which is quite exciting. And this takes away the bridge between my public life and my private life, all uh, between my academic work and community work. It becomes one and the same thing, which is quite exciting. And um, with regard to the theme, the, the different themes that we are working with, uh, in this panel. Uh, let me begin by saying that I used, I've been doing mental health, but I didn't know it was mental health until probably a few years ago. And we didn't even talk mental health, the word mental health, because we didn't know it was mental health, which is very interesting. And um, maybe let me put this a little more clearly. In 2004, I completed my doctorate research, which was on gender, youth sexuality, and HIV AIDS. And the results or the findings of that study was that young people in Kenya are a neglected lot. We neglect them. They are young and their identity as youth, even worse, adolescents, puts them in some moment of crisis because of the changes that they are going through. Very often we see the body changes, but we forget that there are also mental changes, there are also spiritual changes, and they, also, they all need to be taken care of. 
transition mentally and transition spiritually. So what I proposed was a program with young people to bring, to reconstruct African initiation rite, initiation from childhood to adulthood, reconstruct it because times have changed and all that, and come up with a new way of accompanying or mentoring adolescents through adolescence, adolescence into responsible adulthood. And when I look back at the initial modules that we came up with for that training, uh, I see mental health, I see identity, I see epistemic humility. But at that point, I didn't see it that way. I just thought we were just engaging young people in what I refer to as ethics. And when uh, I recommended that churches could take it up, now that I was in the Department of Religious Studies and I was a Christian ethics scholar, and churches didn't take it up, I said, why don't we do it ourselves? I put together a small group of young colleagues, all female, and we came up with a program and the program has been running for the last, this is our 18th year. Working with young people, supporting them transition. But over the years, we keep changing our modules. And about four years ago, we turned one module, which we called confidence and self-esteem, we turned it and called it mental health. And that's the first time we were using the word mental health for young people. Uh, but this was informed by what we had seen over the years working with, young, with these adolescents, that to, to be confident, to have your own self-esteem, you need to understand um, your own mental health, your mind and your spirit too, and your body too. So that mental health for us was not just the mind, but also the body and the spirit. Everything came together as mental health. And at that point, we even stopped talking about health alone, and we started talking about health and well-being. That continues to be one of my most passionate projects. It's around identity of adolescents, it's around mental health, and working with adolescents and young people tells you how much you don't know, particularly when you are my age, because they keep saying things and you're like, oh, okay, I thought you were a child. And then you realize you, you are older by many years, but there are lots of things you don't know. And this has, this has become even more, with, uh, more magnified with uh, digital uh, spaces and digital work. Uh, another program that I'm working on currently is called MDIA, Ethics of Mental Digital, Mental Health Digital Innovations for Young People in Africa. This is only about three years old. So I already got now into mental health. And we are looking at digital innovations across Africa and asking, are these digital innovations ethical? Are we thinking about data? and privacy and confidentiality, and even the general impact of the digital space on mental health of young people. Young people are going through, particularly adolescents, they are going through some identity crisis, wondering who I am and how do I relate to who. And because identity is part of community, you cannot be there without community. In Africa, we, never, we don't think of I, independent of community. Because who are you? If I start defining myself, I have to define myself in relation to somebody else. 
in relation to others, including in relation to the environment. So there is no I in Africa per se, uh, because I is found in community. I'm sure you are familiar with the famous statement by uh, Professor J.S. Bitti, one of the um, great African philosophers. He says, I am because we are, and therefore, because we are, I am. So I and community are more or less one and the same thing. So we are looking at ethical digital innovations and asking how are young people's identities and mental health affected by this? And are we thinking about the of these digital innovations? Then finally, I'm working on a project called Aim Well, African Identities, Moralities, and Well-Being. So we are saying identities and moralities have a major role to play around an individual's well-being. And in this project, we look at various uh, stages of transition of a human project and try to appreciate how identity and moralities come together to give individuals good life or health and well-being. Thank you. I'll stop there for now. I've talked quite a bit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eunice. That was so interesting. And I, I think the first question we're going to be asking you is about community, which is very much going to relate to what you were just talking about. So we'll be coming back to you shortly. Um, Neely, up to you. Thank you, Laura. Uh, so I, my name is Neely Myers, and I'm an anthropologist looking at uh, mental health across cultures. And my uh, I'm really an academic. Um, looking at how young people are experiencing serious emotional distress and how they learn to thrive um, in spite of that distress, which they largely do, as you can imagine, through community. Um, so I think of this in terms of something I call moral agency. Um, so everyone needs to have a sense of moral agency in their life, a sense that they can be seen as a good person by the people that, that they want to recognize them as a good person, um, that they can secure the love and respect uh, that they need with others in order to thrive, especially for young people who are trying to become adults. So a lot of um, what Eunice and Gula Mabas were saying really resonated with me, you know, communities of faith can really support young people in becoming uh, seen as a good person. And a lot of times, even in my own work, I see how communities of faith can block um, young people from seeking help for emotional distress because they're afraid of being seen as a bad or um, flawed person, you know, if, if they seek help. So I think that um, a really important piece of the puzzle is working with faith communities and also working around um, life transitions, as Eunice has done in her own work, um, helping helping young people to nourish their sense of moral agency through uh, ritual and rites of passage and faith are things that uh, culture and religion can really offer. And something that I, I feel as an anthropologist, I'm uniquely positioned to kind of look at and highlight in my own work. Um, partly because anthropologists start off with epistemic humility, right? We say, okay, I don't actually know. Um, I'm not the expert on your life or your, um, your moral world. And I need you to teach me more about you know, what you're experiencing and, and, um, and how you perceive this and how you can best heal. And so I, I think that doing that with young people around the world in terms of mental health is so important. Um, I, so, so many of these top-down interventions are not necessarily 
supporting young people in the way that they could be supported. So um, as an anthropologist, I think another piece that I find to be really exciting is um, something that one of my teachers who's passed away at this point now, but um, Edith Turner, she called Communitas. Um, and in her partnership with Victor Turner, they researched Communitas and various cultures around the world. And Communitas and in, in that con in the anthropological context is this sort of um, self-transcendent joy that people experience when they become part of uh, a ritual or an activity that allows them to connect with each other and community um, in a way that brings well-being and joy. And so um, Edie talks about that in terms of religion and also in terms of um, rites of passage and other pieces. So it's, it, it, you know, I feel like that's a thread that ties all these things together, at least in my mind, I'll try to talk about that a little more. But on a practical level, um, at the moment, I'm focused, my current research is focused on um, young people experiencing early psychosis or what's being labeled as early psychosis, um, at least in the hospital and the ways that, uh, at least here in the US, we respond to that with crisis services and um, how that shapes young people's sense of self and belonging and how it <clears throat> how they make decisions about treatment after um, these early experiences of mental health care, how that how much that has to do with moral agency and their effort to become a valued and meaningful adult in the American context. Um, and so I'm working on a book about that right now. Um, I think it's called Breaking Points, uh, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so I'm halfway done. We'll see what happens. Um, and I also work in have worked in Northern um, Tanzania looking at um, women's mental health. And I humbly say that that project still feels very early. Um, and so I, I won't try to speak as an expert on, on that topic, but um, I have done research there, particularly around uh, women hearing voices in the Maasai community, my work so far. Thank you so much, uh, Neely, uh, Eunice, and Galamabas for uh, you know sharing sharing uh, this window uh, into your work. Uh, it, of course, you know we could have hours <laughs> just hearing more just just about uh, the research itself. Uh, and you know, thank you for situating it within the the themes that we're talking about today. Uh, and you you certainly have already talked about. Uh, community, uh, you know, talking about drawing upon uh, uh, values um, that, that are relevant uh, and, uh, and concepts, you know, that have that, uh, you know, salience for, for your community members uh, in, in doing uh, the, the mental health work that you're doing. Uh, and so to dig a little deeper into it, uh, I, I will, I'm asking, you know, what, what are the roles of community uh, in mental health work uh, you know, whether generally or within your specific work. And uh, uh, Eunice, uh, if you could please uh, uh, <laughs> start us off uh, with, with this question. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I'll begin by observing that, like I have said before, that um, individual identity is dependent on community identity. When I define myself and I say I'm a mother, it's in relation to my children. I'm a wife in relation to my daughter. I'm a teacher in relation to my students. There is always the community that makes me who I am. And therefore, what I think is good for me is what the community thinks is good for me in a way. And it's what the community thinks is good is very often aligned to what I think is good 
because I want to demonstrate to myself and demonstrate to the community that I am a good person. I am worthy and I am leading a good life. So if there is an imbalance between what I think and what the community think, definitely it's going to affect my mental health. There will be implications. So the community is central to my mental health, to an individual's mental health. The interesting thing about human life is that it's quite complex. So it's not just that the community has a good role to play or a central role to play in making my health good, but it also works the other way. The community can actually be a source of poor mental health for me because it may be making demands beyond what I can demonstrate or what I can present to the same community. And the community may castigate me, the community may condemn me, the community may respond in a way that makes me feel that I'm not worthy, that I'm not a good person, that I'm not, my life is not worth it. And that becomes a mental health issue for me. So what we need to remember at all times is that knowledge of what is good and what is not good, for example, morality, for example, is constructed, largely constructed. It is not like it is given. And as an individual, I construct and reconstruct my, my, my identity and my morality, depending on how I want to present myself to the community and how the community wants me to present myself. In a nutshell, I would say that the community has a major role to play in preventing poor mental health and in managing mental health of individuals and in promoting mental health of individuals because of this intricate relationship between it and the individual. And the fact that the community can play a positive role and it can also play a negative role as it helps the individual construct and reconstruct their identities and moralities. Thank you. Thank you, Eunice. Uh, and uh, I'll move to uh, Neely uh, in terms of, uh, you know, your thoughts on this question of the role of community, roles of community in mental health work. Yeah, I, I really um, see what Eunice is saying as, as being a great, <laughs> a great uh, summary, really, of my own thoughts. Um, I think that I would just expand the notion of a relationship between the individual and the community and their need to be recognized as a good person by the community and the sort of co-construction of that valued identity with the community, um, I think is something that gives a person agency. So I think it they, they need to not only be seen as a good person, but be, be able to act in that way. And I think that uh, a lot of times stigma plays a big role in people's ability to have uh, mental wellness, especially if the community makes it more difficult for you to access a sense that you're a good person because you've uh, demonstrated that you've, you know, you're experiencing, for example, with the young people I work with, a complete break with reality from the perspective of the community. It's hard to come back from something like that. Um, I think it's hard to, I think that certain groups are, that the community privileges certain people and uh, disadvantages others, you know, which we've seen play out with, um, you know, certainly racialized identities in the in America lately, and looking at um, how the racialization of certain groups has created, you know, serious mental health 
issues, um, the minoritization of other groups like the LGBTQ uh, young people has also had its mental health effects. So, um, so many of these aspects of community are constantly being socially negotiated in terms of morality. And I, I think trying to find where a person can have agency in that so that they can move their life forward um, in a way that resonates with other people, but it is also still true to themselves, I think is a really important piece of mental health. So how can the community help young people by supporting them, you know, materially, with resources, housing, you know, transportation, of course, um, but also socially and spiritually so that they are able to find um, a sense of belonging and love and um, connection in a, in a community where we're all flawed. You know, all of us are flawed in, in some ways. No, no one is really good or <laughs> meets some kind of ideal. Um, Thank you uh, so much, Neely. Uh, you know, uh, building on those uh, those uh, insights that Eunice brought up, you know, regarding co code construction of identity uh, and bringing in uh, these uh, important points about uh, stigma. And it's also really interesting uh, underneath <laughs> what we've been hearing is, is the importance of this, uh, this aspect of connection, uh, you know, with community uh, for uh, a person's uh, mental health and, and sense of well-being. Uh, and so, uh, Galamabis, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the roles of the community in mental health work? Well, I, I was quite struck by both what Eunice was saying as well as Neely. Um, th there are so many contact points between the comments you were both making. Um, and I'd just like to uh, pick up on a couple of, of, of threads there. Um, Eunice, I really love the way you, you, you showed the balance that you know, community can be both a positive and a negative force. Um, and Neely, you used the word stigma. Uh, you know, I mean that 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 in my in my research that that's been huge. Um, so um, I'd like to give you the um, uh, the case of a particular participant in one of my research because I think her story um, uh, makes clear a couple of different aspects. Firstly, the role of community. Um, in mental health formulation. So this idea of mental health work, what is the work in mental health and who does it? Um, that work um, is, you know, firstly with the individual who's experiencing that mental health challenge. And then the clinicians around that person, if there are any, because often they don't access services and the family and friends around them and the broader community. And I think for me, this also links with what community leaders and opinion formers, people with authority um, are saying about mental health at a particular point in time. And of course, it's governed by geography as well. Um, culture matters. And neither can we say that just because you come from community X, then therefore your culture is whatever it is. Because I mean, for instance, my research was looking at depression in the UK Muslim community. But I very quickly found, as a mere psychologist and not an anthropologist, nearly I seek your forgiveness up front. Um, you know, I had to I had to grapple with the fact that you know my data was culturally diverse. Um, I was dealing with people from the UK uh, Muslim Pakistani community, the Arab community, you know, the, the North African community, etc. Um, 
And it makes a big difference. And there are two things in particular. Firstly, when we look at it from the perspective of um, the clinicians and the, the particular lens I was looking through since I'm based in the UK, I was looking at uh, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, guidelines on depression, particularly the psychotherapeutic interventions for poor depression and, and trying to correlate the key techniques across a range of interventions from CBT, mindfulness-based therapy, behavioral activation, et cetera, with core aspects of Islamic uh, prayer and belief. Um, so the concepts and practices from Islam that are well uh, established are also found in other major religions. I spend quite a bit of time in interfaith work. So Eunice, it would be quite interesting to compare notes from what you're seeing in the Christian tradition. But certainly what, what, what I found is that there are 10 contact points psychotherapeutically um, and um, uh, from a faith perspective that can be brought into two main categories. One is self-knowledge and the other is resilience. Um, and in terms of self-knowledge, it includes many of the dimensions of metacognition, you know, awareness of thoughts, recognizing emotions, mindfulness practice, goal setting, as well as recognition of our bodily uh, functions and, and the role of our bodies, uh, which often gets swept under the carpet as we sort of live in our minds. Um, in terms of resilience, I think this is where community really comes in. And by the way, Eunice, I just loved your quote uh, from the scholar that you talked about, you know, the sense of, of, of an individual is really relative uh, to the we and the us. And there, in terms of resilience, and indeed, dare I say it, flourishing, um, there are key aspects of community. Firstly, optimism and hope. You know, hope seldom works in a vacuum. You know, there's a, there's a relativity to it relative to others. Secondly, motivation and, and agency. I mean, nearly I was quite struck with the way you use the concept of agency, particularly moral agency. I mean, there's a whole conversation to be had there. Um, but the sense of agency that one has, or indeed has been robbed of, is quite important because the way stigma works is that it often robs people of that sense of agency, particularly moral agency. Um, so for instance, you know, one of the things that I've had to counter is you know, my colleagues in Muslim ministry, you know, some of whom quite old fashioned, who still have the idea that if you experience depression, then that is a sign of your poor faith, that if only you had more faith, then you would not suffer from depression. And, you know, I kind of pull my hair out, although there's not much left anyway, um, when, 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 I, when I come across this, because it's so corrosive. And yet, when we look at the teachings, you know, particularly the Old Testament prophets who are shared across the Abrahamic tradition, you know, examples, you know, of Job, of Jacob, you know, who are in the Quran, and yet nobody would doubt their faith. And when we look at the stories of, 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 of how Job uh, and, and, and for instance, Jacob coped with, 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 with sadness, with anxiety, how they used their faith as a crutch to support them, not as a manifestation of poor faith. I think we need to radically change the narrative here. Um, and so the role of community, as Eunice was, was, was warning, can be profoundly negative. And, you know, the, the, the point that Neely was making about stigma is extremely important because then it's not just about community stigmatization, but far more corrosively, it's also self-stigmatization. And that really hurts because you can never escape that.
you're always walking around with the stigmatizer. And I think in that regard, the role of community is really dual-pronged. And I'd like to end with what I said at the beginning, which is the example, the case study of a particular participant. This was a remarkable young woman who had suffered a late stage miscarriage. So the form of depression that, 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 that uh, she had enrolled onto my study for was postpartum depression. And when we were exploring you know, how that arose and, 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 and her experiences of that, a big part of that was that she was not allowed to grieve for the loss of her baby because she was told, have patience. You know, don't cry, um, you know, have faith in God, have patience and um, move on. And it was only much later when she um, discovered that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, actually, when he lost a small child, he and the mother of the child sat and they wept together. It was a, a human experience of loss. And often we forget that religion is there to support our human experiences not just with regard to community and physical ill health, but mental ill health too. Yet, rather than the community being supportive, it was actually detrimental to her well-being. It was only through her own research later when she, when she understood and experienced different aspects of religious history that she was able to reframe in psychotherapeutic terms her own experience within a culturally appropriate context that resonated with her own self of moral agency and supported it rather than detracting from it. Thank you, Ulam Abbas. It's been really interesting to see the development in all three of your responses of thinking about the role of community. And I think you said it well in your last point that it's two-pronged, right? That community can be a positive or a negative force, right? It can kind of support mental health or through stigmatization, it can break it down in ways that are self-reinforcing. Um, so I want to ask a little bit more about that question. So what we're interested in is, in particular, how do people's identities show up in their mental health treatment? And I'm, I'm using that word plurally, right? So people's identities, we've been talking about community quite broadly, and I know that the three of you all work with different types of communities. Um, so especially in the US, right, we're a pluralistic, uh, country, people often have membership in lots of different communities and those make up their identity in different ways. So one thing I think would be interesting is for each of you to identify how you're thinking about community and perhaps speak to when people's identities are perhaps, maybe they're not, but perhaps they're constructed intersectionally, how does that membership, how does that identity as part of different communities, right? perhaps as an adolescent um, in Eunice's work or Gulama Abbas as part of the Muslim faith in your own work, right? How do these different types of identities um, affect people's mental health treatment and influence how that treatment works? So I'm going to ask Neely to start us off with that first question. I think that the, the way that I think of a community from, you know, looking at it from the perspective of a young person who's trying to make their way in the world and become part of, uh, you know, become a meaningful adult in a in a niche of life that makes sense to them and, and that is meaningful for them. Um, at least in the U.S., I think that 
I would, I mean, in most cultures, actually, I would call that a local moral world. So um, that's borrowing a term from Arthur Kleinman, but it's this uh, place where you want to belong um, and where you need people to recognize you as a good person in order to belong. And every moral world has its own sets of rules about what it means to be a good person and belong in that particular social context. Um, and I think right now we have a lot of so what I see in in terms of, I mean, I wouldn't say treatment as much as I would say in moments of crisis when people are seeking help um, or when they're forced to seek help. A, a lot of times, because I work with early psychosis, um, young people don't necessarily see that they need, you know, especially if it's their first time experiencing psychosis, they, they don't know that they need mental health treatment. Um, often what they're thinking that, that they need, a lot of times there's a very spiritual explanation that they're experiencing for what's going on. So I noticed that, you know, out of the 48 young people that I interviewed in this big larger study that I did, you know, meeting young people in the hospital, following them out for six months, which is uh, the topic of the book, you know, 95% of the young people were thought that they were having a very spiritual experience. And so it was very devastating to them when their local moral world didn't think that they were having a spiritual experience. Um, and so I wonder if there's ways to help people preserve what's valuable about their experience that um, that is very spiritual and precious to them um, in a way that sort of connects them with community instead of saying, no, you're outside of it because you're not really having a spiritual experience. Um, and so as I, as, I, as I'm meeting with young people in the hospital, I'm seeing that they're desperately trying to communicate to me that they're a good person. Um, so they're telling me about how they're a good student and they volunteer and they go to church. Um, they want to be recognized as a good person all the time. And so I think that we can think more creatively about how to co-create healing spaces with young people that resonate with them uh, morally and that help connect them to the local moral world that they want to belong in. And I, I just wanna note that in terms of intersectional identities, I think, again, that young people who don't match up uh, to what the larger mainstream community thinks is moral or good um, struggle more when they have a mental health crisis to resurface as a moral agent. Um, I think the, that the broader culture doesn't give, I mean, psychosis especially, um, but also, you know, in some circumstances, women or uh, you know, young people who are gay in their faith communities. If that's not accepted, then it, it becomes much harder to return to well-being. Um, so I think we need to think about very carefully uh, about how to, um, I don't know, how, how communities that young people turn to for help can rethink um, their positions on certain identities. I think next we're going to turn to Gulam Abbas to further build on that question about the role community plays in individuals' mental health and especially how identity as a member of a community or perhaps particular communities um, influences that treatment. Yeah, I think this um, uh, intersectionality is, is, is really quite important. Um, uh, for uh, the group of people involved with an individual. Um, 
in my research, um, I've been looking at both service users and service providers. And what's really interesting is that the service providers, and, and I've been working with sort of family physicians who we call general practitioners in the UK, um, as well as uh, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, um, they, as, as well as you know, people from um, palliative care. What is overwhelmingly clear to me is that regardless of whether these practitioners come from a faith community or not, whether the faith community they come from happens to be Muslim or not, or whether they are from a non-faith background, there is this amazing professional ethic of being able to meet the client or the patient where they are within the um, moral um, um, uh, space, within the values context that that individual operates, such that they are trying to be able to dovetail their chosen interventions, particularly when, when it's psychotherapeutic, um, with their understanding of the concepts and practices that are important to the individual. Um, now, of course, we cannot assume that every Christian has the same understanding of Christianity, just as we can't assume that every Muslim has the same understanding of Islam. And this is why the clinicians are very keen to be able to understand what uh, the value system that that individual comes from means to them. What, you know, in Neely's terms, you know, the moral uh, uh, agency, the context of, of, of what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a faithful person. And in that regard, I'd like to share one little example um, that came from one of my colleagues. Um, so here in the Department of Psychiatry, we, we have a wonderful uh, cross-section of colleagues. And I was giving a presentation about this work, religion and mental health, and, and somebody came up to me saying, there was an interesting case I had when I was working in Bradford. Now, this was um, 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 a white English woman who was a, a clinical uh, psychologist working in Bradford, which is a very heavily Asian Muslim area. So she had a client coming to her who was um, an Asian Pakistani male in his 50s who had been referred by the family physician, by the GP. And she said the first encounter was really bizarre because you know, from the notes that she had received, this person you know, you know, you know, clearly had signs of depression. So when she asked him to speak about how he was feeling, he opened up because he felt safe in that therapeutic encounter. And it was largely due to the skill of that psychologist. But this is the point about intersectionality of communities. When that man felt he was part of a therapeutic community formed of those two people, the clinician and him, he was able to speak in one way. And then suddenly he heard himself say, I think I have depression. And the psychologist tells me that when he heard himself say those words, he froze. His other identity kicked in and, and his identity as being part of a faith community. And he said, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I take that back. So she asked him, why? And his response was, because I am a faithful Muslim. I do not want to be unfaithful to my faith. So this notion of fidelity came in as as a counter community that he was a member of. Now I say counter in the relative context of that encounter. Of course, you know, 
there's a ton of material to say that it's it's not in any way inconsistent. But his understanding of what it meant to be a faithful person of faith was completely incongruent with the notion of himself as a mental health patient, particularly somebody experiencing depression. And I think so we need to be really careful about what intersectionality means. In some cases, it can be incredibly supportive, but in other cases, it can create incongruences that need to be managed both for the individual as well as the clinician, because often clinicians who are trying to help these individuals are left bereft because they have a choice of either forcing through with their intervention in technical speak or and, and thereby potentially trampling upon the values of the individual or becoming unwittingly recruited into wrong perceptions that are damaging to the individual. And so I think we need to also support the community of clinicians. And one of the things that has really surprised me is the openness of the clinical community. And, and I mean, the, there's sort of a number of invitations I've had to speak to psychiatrists, for instance, on, 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 on how we may be able to speak about psychotherapeutic concepts in a language that is consistent with faith values and doesn't cut across any uh, value lines or moral lines um, and, and tries to avoid some of the sort of landmines out there, of which there are many. Uh, as, as someone who trained in theology originally, you know, I dare say there are quite a few. Um, so clinicians are aware of that. And they're like, well, hang on, I'm not a theologian. I'm a psychologist or, you know, I'm a family physician or a psychiatrist. And yet I'm dealing with theological issues because they keep coming up in my clinic. You know, how am I supposed to deal with that? You know, it's, it's like that emoji of the head blowing up. You know, it's like, you know, there's too much to cope with in one 55 minute session. I mean, how am I supposed to juggle all of these things? And it really speaks to the lack well-developed bridges between these two sides of the river, between the, 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 the service user community and the service provider community. Both of them want to talk to each other, but they find long circuitous routes to get to one another when what we really need are well-developed strong bridges so that they may be able to speak to one another in language that is supportive of the concepts and practices that they each need to adhere to. Thank you, Ghulam Abbas. Um, I think part of what you're talking about has been often described, right, as, as cultural competence is one way to kind of make that bridge. But I think part of what this panel is problematizing is exactly what that means, right? What it means to try to create these bridges and to acknowledge that individuals are members of communities, these communities are diverse and they might have different conceptions of themselves and have different influences on the individual, right? Depending on if it's that positive influence or that negative influence. Um, and so I think we're really putting into context what initially, at least I think in, in US medicine, I don't know to the extent to which this is a, a global term, but cultural competence was initially something really quite thin. Um, and I think we're adding some really important levels to what that might mean. Um, Eunice, so if I could turn to you and ask you to speak to uh, this idea of how treating an individual as a member or as members of um, a member of different communities 
plays up in the kind of mental health work that you do, and especially maybe addressing this question of intersectionality. So what happens when individuals have multiple identities, they're part of different communities, um, and how does that work within their mental health care? I've had the uh, opportunity to listen to Gulam, uh, Gulam Abbas um, because what he talks about is very close to what I would say um, around the subject of intersectionality because human identities are complex. I'm not just one thing, I'm one many things. I don't just belong to one community. I have a thousand, you know, actually a thousand communities. But uh, first I would like to remind us, um, of course we all know this, that uh, the world is a stage, but think about it literally, that the world is a stage and we are all actors. Now our communities are our audience. And as we act, we want to present to our audience what the audience will crap for. But now when you have mixed audience who are calling for different things, it means that when one audience is clapping, the other audience is booing, booing us. And at that point, we don't know, do we continue with this dance or do we change the dance? You know, you get mixed up in the process and that has negative implications on mental health for sure. One of the projects that I said I'm working on is this one on digital innovations for mental health of young people. We are looking at the ethics. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, so we're just looking at the ethics around it. And one of the things we found about um, young people is that they want digital innovations. They love them for mental health. They are like, I want to, to, to be treated without somebody sitting before me looking at me and knowing me. So they imagine that in digital space, there's privacy, which is a myth really. There's absolutely no privacy. It's actually worse than face to face. But young people are happy to go into. But now the sad thing is that you go into that space thinking it's private, and then it turns out that it's not private. That the audience you want to hear you are there, but the audience you don't want to hear you are also there. They're also listening in and you're like, how do I then present myself? Because you want to demonstrate or to present yourself to different audiences as the different audiences requires. Now, coming back to what um, my colleague Gulam Abba said about um, addressing holistic health and how difficult it is for one person to do that. Uh, we are running a project at our Moi Teaching and Referral Hospital where, to, where we are trying to introduce spiritual health in hospital settings. Coming from the Department of Religion and Theology, this is a clinical pastoral education program. And as we came in, we came in about five years ago as research, and now we have started uh, some postgraduate diploma training uh, chaplains. Because what what, what's been the case in Kenya is that uh, people think spirituality is religion. And so they'll pick ministers, ordained ministers from church and put them or wherever and put them in hospitals and call them chaplains. They have no idea how a hospital lands. They have nothing about, they know little about medicine. They know little about even spirituality. 
and there they are. What are they doing in hospitals and chaplains? They are playing for the sick and mass. And they say that is spiritual health. And yet some of this prayer is very toxic. It is toxic theology. It is saying the wages of sin is death, you know, and somebody is on their dying bed, you know. It's, it does more damage. It's such, it's such a damaging thing. So anyway, what I wanted to say is to agree with um, Abbas that um, people are yearning to understand the whole, except that we are not clear how to understand this whole. When we came to hospital, we thought medical doctor, biomedics would be very rough on us. You know, they'll be like, what's religion coming to do in hospital? No, 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 we don't want salvation in hospital. That's what we expected. And you we are ready for it. But we were pleasantly surprised that some biomedics were even asking us, give us care. We need care. I have been in uh, surgery. My patient has died. I'm spiritually completely disoriented. How do I handle the next case? And we said that is why we are here. We are here not just for patients, but here we are for everybody working in a hospital settings who is interested in understanding how spirituality can promote health. If you if you are able to diagnose diagnosize spiritual need, like Guram uh, Abbas was saying, you don't need to treat it yourself identifying it is good enough, then you can refer to those people that we are training for spiritual care, giving. But you can't refer if you don't recognize it. So we are saying we need some basic awareness. The same way we give chaplains basic awareness of medicine and hospital settings, we need to give biomedics basic understanding of spirituality and how to identify somebody who has need for spiritual care or where spirituality is hindering physical treatment. You are a physician, you want to treat this patient, for sure they have a physical condition, but there is some spirituality that is stopping them from getting access to treatment. Or the other way around, they may have no spiritual condition, sorry, they may have no physical condition. They may just be presenting as having physical issues, but basically their challenge is spiritual care. There is no use giving the medicine over and over again because you're just questioning their physiology. You know, you want to refer them to a spiritual caregiver. So we are saying we need to think more about working as communities rather than working as individuals so that every one of us bring to the table what it is they have. You're great in biomedicine, come in. You're great in spiritual care, come in. You're great in mental health. This one person has all these things. Let's come together and work as a team for the treatment of the patient. Otherwise, we'll be pulling the patient in different direction with all their different identities and communities and messing their health at most. Thank you. Thank you, Eunice. Uh, you really built upon uh, these kind of layered thoughts about intersectionality and, and the tensions that can be in there uh, in terms of, you know, serving serving people people's identities. And I, I think you bring up some, some really um, 
useful reflections also on what it means to provide that holistic care where there may be this uh, this goal of providing you know for the whole person um, but that need to draw upon uh, community <laughs> uh, in order you know to really um, be able to do that uh, and so uh, I'll you know all of you in some ways have already been touching upon uh, you know takeaway points about you know, how uh, providers, how researchers uh, can interface and learn from uh, communities to inform their practice. Uh, and so I, uh, I, I want to, uh, you know, ask to dig in a little bit more um, into that area uh, to go back to uh, Galamabas' uh, point about uh, bridges, uh, you know, think, thinking about, you know, what is needed or, or what, um, uh, you know, what what <laughs> advice or, or thoughts you have on, uh, you know, building those bridges. Uh, in particular, you know, just noting that uh, you all have done work uh, working with communities that you share some identities with, um, but also, uh, you know, Neely touched upon, uh, you know, also doing work uh, with uh, communities uh, where there may be less overlap, <laughs> uh, you know, in, in the identity between the researchers or the healthcare providers and that community. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what kind of thoughts you have on, you know, what is needed to inform um, the, their practices. Uh, so I'll start with uh, Galamabis, uh, what your thoughts are um, on, on this question. Um. I have so much that I want to um, respond to what Eunice was talking about. Um, you know, particularly the, the the warmth of the welcome um, we have from clinicians. I mean, I, I was really surprised, um, and actually, I should not have been, because a good scientist is looking for potential ways of addressing the problem, and when we look at the data which as we're all scientists, ultimately, that's, that's, that's the, the field we're working in. The data is quite scary. It shows the, the colossal number of people who are treatment resistant, you know, resistant to both um, medication as well as psychotherapy you know, to, for, for, for many mental health conditions, notably depression. So what we currently are offering in a sort of secular medicalized way is not working for a large number of people. And that creates a scientific imperative to look for something different. And so when we, when we enter the theological space with the lens of science, we see different things. And we can empower clinicians to enter theological space without necessarily being theologians, but as scientists, to come and identify techniques and practices that are within the theological space that they can use clinically. And that's what I mean by the bridge building. But from the other side of the river, we should also encourage theologians to identify scientifically validated uh, psychotherapeutic techniques that are also within the scriptures, that are also within faith practices. Um, in my research, I was looking at five dimensions from uh, um, the Islamic tradition, looking at the Quran, so scripture, looking at Psalms. I mean, Psalms are so powerful for metacognition, and they basically hold up a mirror to you to understand what you're feeling and why. And 
that process of communicating within a community. Um, hence, you know, there's that old joke uh, from the Jewish community that, you know, my friend Garfunkel goes to synagogue to meet God. I go to synagogue to meet my friend Garfunkel. You know, there is an important social dimension that is incredibly powerful and supportive. And clinicians as scientists recognize that in many ways. And so as long as we're empowering the clinicians to be proper scientists and escorting them into theological space, helping them avoid the landmines and identify the places where there's low hanging fruit, it can help the scientific endeavor. And similarly, if we can, as Eunice was saying, if we can escort um, ministers into the scientific realm um, and, and, and empower them with scientific methods, then the language will be similar. And so the hope for meaningful dialogue can be greater. And I think there's a lot of optimism around this because the initial sort of, shall we say, exuberance of the secular community in the 90s and the early noughties has dissipated quite a lot as we have seen that it just doesn't work. Psychotherapy as it's often delivered in a manualized form simply doesn't work for too many people. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the arena of you know, moral agency, of faith-based identity that needs to be brought into the clinical encounter in order to effectively address the mental health challenges of the given individual in front of us. And that's where I'd like to end with the notion of personalized mental health. All too often, the concept of personalized means you know, precision in the sense of genetically uh, targeted um, interventions. But actually there's a lot of lower hanging fruit in the sense of personalized mental health regarding to the personhood of the individual the clinician is treating. And the personhood aspect is intersectional in terms of community, is interdimensional in terms of secular and faith. And the recognition of the holistic person is integral to any form of really effective psychotherapy. It's only today that we choose to label that as personalized mental health, as opposed to the kind of factory approach, the conveyor belt factory approach of manualized mental health that we had to go into because of the uh, organizational requirements and the paucity of resources in healthcare systems. But really all we're doing is going back to the beginning, going back to the individual encounter and personalizing the conversation between the clinician and the individual. Thank you, Dolomibus. Uh, th those are those are some really powerful thoughts about uh, you know re reorienting you know how how we think about uh, both you know tre treatment resistance <laughs> and effectiveness and and bringing things back around to personhood. Uh, and so, uh, Eunice, uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll move to you uh, in terms of your thoughts on this question about how uh, care providers and researchers uh, can learn from communities to inform their practice. Um, thank you. Thank you, Nicole. It's difficult to say anything after what Gulam Abbas has said, because I don't want to spoil that. It is so well put, you know, 
like I've just made some notes on the need to escort, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. I just love it. So rather than mess that up, I would like to give a short, quick story, a real life story. It happened in Ohio. Um, a cardiologist went into surgery and needed to repair the heart of a woman, Mrs. Johnson. So the cardiologist went into surgery, removed the heart, repaired it successfully, and then he put it back in its cavity. Then he massaged the chest to bring back the heart, but the heart did not respond. He used more aggressive measures, you know, um, including some electric shock, but the heart was not responding. What did the cardiologist do? He knelt by the bed, by the head of the patient and called, Mrs. Johnson, this is your surgeon. Operation was very successful and your heart is in perfect shape. I have put it back in your, in your chest and now we are ready to go. Please tell your heart to start beating again. Can you imagine the heart started to beat? The amazing thing about this story, you can look it up online. It's a true story in Ohio. Uh, it happens that this cardiologist was theological, had been escorted into theology. So he had some sense of spirituality. The amazing thing is that this cardiologist, in spite of his great experience and expertise in cardiology, he had a sense of epistemic humility, you know, bending down, kneeling by this patient and calling her and telling her, we've done this, now it's you. He was saying, I can't go beyond here. I have a limitation here. I have done everything I know, but there's still some chance. And I'm using that chance. And it is with you, Mrs. Johnson. So tell your heart to start beating again. I love this story. I don't, I'm, I'm sure we can't do, I don't know whether it's possible even to do a randomized control trial around that kind of situation. But these are some of the things that Gulam Mabaz is talking about. We need to get people in, uh, in spirituality and religion thinking more about how they can use science uh, to make what theology can do, what spirituality can do uh, much more, much more usable because you can't use what you can't test physically. I mean, how do you use, how do you do things without testing them, you know? But if these theologians would learn a little about scientific inquiry, testing, trying and so on, and the medics can understand spirituality just enough to recognize when they need to say, I have done my bit, now it's you to make your heart beat, you know? to get to that point where you realize, uh, I've done everything I could do, let's call the chaplain now. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Eunice. That's one of those perfect stories. <laughs> and, and to find out that it's true at, uh, at the end of it, um, I, I'm really just blown away. And I, I think it just so beautifully encapsulates uh, uh, these points. Uh, and uh, Neely, uh, so, uh, you know, in, in, your, in your perspective, uh, you know, how can uh, care providers, researchers uh, learn from communities to inform their practice? 
Great. Well, I, I really see um, researcher. So I see the communities as being very busy and practitioners as being very busy. <laughs> um, so I, I think that researchers um, can really bridge the community to the practitioner and, and help them speak to each other. Um, of course, I'm an anthropologist. So I think ethnography is an excellent way um, to help communities and practitioners interface more. Um, so ethnography for the unfamiliar, uh, the unindoctrinated, <laughs> is just spending time with people um, in their everyday lives while they're engaged in their everyday practices um, to ask them, you know, how how they do those things and what matters to them. Um, so you're literally, you know, communing to go with our, our theme of community with people. You're breaking bread with them. You're exposing yourself to other ways of knowing and approaching things, um, and you're doing so with humility. So I heard Laura say cultural competence earlier, but I, I think um, maybe even a more powerful term is cultural humility, which is really epistemic humility, this idea that, you know, we need to sort of humbly enter into the house of culture uh, when we're in other people's social contexts and, and enter it like a child full of wonder and really try to not be the expert and understand, you know, let that expertise rise up out of the community. And to do that, you know, I think we really need to use more participatory methods to, to go in and say, you know, rather than I have this set of questions I want to ask you to say, what can I ask that would help you? You know, what can I, what do you need to know to become a stronger community to promote mental health more? You know, how can we co-create an understanding that serves you um, and, and the people that you're trying to serve um, so that we can together use research to, um, create a better world, a world where people can can uh, flourish and, and be moral agents um, locally in ways that are meaningful to them. So that would be my thought. Thank you so much, Neely. I think that's a really um, lovely and optimistic note to end on. Um, we began kind of asking these very basic questions about identity and community and mental health. And I think it's really quite astounding how much um, depth and complexity we've added to those, again, relatively simple terms in just an hour of conversation. Um, just to underscore, I think one of the things that um, is very much a takeaway is that it's really imperative to engage with communities and to understand how communities relate to individual mental health, but it's also really complicated. Um, and I think you all are excellent exemplars of how to do that complicated work on the ground in a really um, responsible and intriguing way. Um, so I just wanna close on behalf of myself, Laura Specker-Sullivan and Nicole Martinez, and thank our three amazing panelists. So once again, we had Neely Myers, Eunice Kamara and Gulam Abbas Laka talking with us today about social justice and neuroethics. So thank you all again. This was wonderful. If these themes and conversations have piqued your interest, Check out the International Neuroethics Society website, where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions. Speakers from today's episode can be found in the sessions titled Global Mental Health Care, Identifying Disparities and Setting Priorities, and Justice, Religion, and Neuroscience, Promoting Socially Transformative Well-Being. Did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic? We want to hear from you. 
We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening.